everyone's got one from the Central African Mammy Water to the Australian Aboriginal Rainbow Serpent to any manner of sea snakes and azure dragons and even the Loch Ness Monster. Water beings in cultures around the world have driven the career of Oxford-based anthropologist Veronica Strang, who finds them and their lore a powerful way to understand human relationships with the Earth, as well as possibly suggesting a strategy for their future. Culture File visited Professor Strang at her home in Osney Island on the edge of waterlogged Oxford, where we talked about, among other things, two-headed snakes, the meaning of irrigation, and a new old way of thinking about humans in their home. My name is Veronica Strang, and I'm a cultural anthropologist whose research focuses primarily on human relationships with water. And so for many decades, I have been researching water issues from a variety of perspectives, from the sort of crunchy political conflicts over water, legal conflicts, management issues, but also the more esoteric ideas that people have and their beliefs in, in, in water beings and how they imagine their relationships with water. If you look at early human societies, they worship nature, so they worship the elements, light, water, the earth, and so forth. And in consequence, they all had important water beings or water divinities, if you like. And I'm not sure I would describe this so much as a religion, as a way of understanding the power of water. So what you get are these wonderful serpentine beings that not only manifest the properties of water in themselves, so they're fluid, snaky, and they, you know, they bear the colours of water, they're hybrid in that they um, contain elements of all the beings that they generate, and they also just manifest the power of water to, to generate life in a cyclical way. So, of course, they're very crucial to societies. They bring the annual rains, whether this is for hunter-gatherers or crops, and they uh, make floods or droughts when they're displeased. So they also represent a very respectful relationship with nature in which people understood that it had its co-creative powers and they they also had at that point much more sustainable lifestyles very place-based and so they worshipped local water beings and these water beings represent the hydrological cycle so you get your uh, springs and wells and fountains representing groundwaters but also celestial beings with wings that represent wind and weather and have and create lightning and, and fire and they represent the whole circle of the of the of the hydrological cycle one of the things we need to realize is that early societies are every bit as clever as we are they you know uh, they just understood the world in really different ways and one of the things that really characterizes hunter-gatherer societies is they're very observant they observe every detail of their environments and so their understandings of things like the hydrological cycle are based on a lot of close observation of all the tiny events that it occurs during for years and in that sense they're like modern physicists because they work entirely upon observation 
and so they have a very sophisticated set of of knowledge ecological knowledge about how water moves through the environment and what it does as it goes so their water beings are equally sophisticated they generate life they manage all of the things that happen and they also manage the law they create a, a, a set of social laws because one of the things that you often find with um, water deities is that they are bringers of consciousness and wisdom because they're life creators and so they're very important in terms of knowledge so many of the water beings that i've studied also bring the law and consciousness and enlightenment What is the jump there, though, between this careful observation of movements of water and of uh, cycles of growth and renewal and the need to personify it? What, what joins those two things together? Well, this, I think, comes back to how humans, human cognitive processes tend to personify aspects of the environment so if you read the work of people like andy clark who talk about extended mind what you see is is people throwing their imaginations out into the world and and extending their minds out into the world so most hunter gatherers would have inhabited sentient landscapes full of ancestral beings who were always omnipresent watching guiding punishing if necessary, applying the law, and so forth. And so what you have is a, is a vision of collective mind that is extended into the landscape and the waterscape, and it makes it conscious and reactive, and it also acknowledges it as a partner in human lives. So you've got a sort of wonderful way of, of that extension recognizing the co-creativity and no division between culture and nature this comes much later historically so you have a very uh, symbiotic vision of humans and other kinds inhabiting a shared world in which other things also have power of course when humans become more instrumental and start to control the material world more that that is how, that is when you see the relationship start to change because you get no more inequality and then as that inequality emerges you get changes in in the belief systems in which water is this all-powerful serpent being into uh, a more kind of push towards human empowerment and that's why you get over time the humanization of many of these deities so they they suddenly acquire well not suddenly but processually acquire human torsos and heads and then they get humanized entirely or they're superseded by human deities who take over the job of providing water and punishing with floods and droughts and bringing the law and providing social authority so if you like they get d disempowered as humans acquire more material power and then you can see through examining these water beings this fascinating pattern of humanization in religious forms which goes through pantheons of human and semi-human gods to human gods that then also move out of the local environment into places like olympus and then of course you've got the move into the big monotheisms or the major religions in which entirely human gods take charge and then it becomes the whole patriarchal supreme father god and the notion of dominion over nature which of course is very much um, entangled with our current environmental issues because we're b busily trying to control everything materially 
and, and at the expense of its of its the stability of ecosystems and so forth. So so in a sense, this study is as much about changing relationships between humans and, and water as it is about the water deities themselves. They're just they're like a narrative device that shows us how those changes occur and why they occur and why we are now where we are in an environmental crisis. I was talking there to Veronica Strang, author of Water Beings, From Nature Worship to the Environmental Crisis, and we'll have another litre of that conversation next time on Culture File.